Well, hey everyone, welcome to episode 145 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen. This week's episode features a large and medium format film photographer from Western Kansas, Michael Strickland. Michael transitioned from digital to film and hasn't looked back. He was featured in a really interesting GeekWire YouTube video showcasing why he made the switch, which really piqued my interest. Michael and I covered a wide variety of topics this week, including photographing panoramas using film, photographing the Great Plains, drum scanning, portraying mood and emotion through photography, platinum palladium prints, and a lot more. Over on Patreon this week, Michael gives us some tips on how to get started in film photography. Just head over to patreon.com slash fstopandlisten for more information on how you can support the podcast and get bonus content at the same time. All right, well, before we get started, I wanted to remind listeners that my good friend Gary Randall still has some workshop openings for his 2020 Alaska Photography Workshops. You could not meet a nicer guy than Gary Randall, so I really think you'll love going with him to photograph bears on the Kenai Peninsula. Check it out by going to gary-randall.com. Okay, let's get to the show. Michael Strickland, it's so cool to finally have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks, man. It's good to be here. I was really excited to learn about you. I think one of my one of our listeners uh, sent me some information on you, which we'll talk more about later. And the deeper I got to digging about you, I got more and more interested. So I'm excited that you could could join us. Well, hopefully, I don't disappoint. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't want to talk you up too much. I mean, yeah, you know. I know. Settle down a little bit. <laughs> Well, I guess maybe first out, just to kind of introduce yourself, who you are, where you're from, where you live, um, and would love to hear about kind of your journey uh, into photography. Yeah. So I am Michael Strickland. I primarily shoot large format when I can. Otherwise, I'm shooting a lot of medium format film these days. Uh, I've been working as a full-time professional photographer now for about oh, three or four years, I think, something like that. I got into photography when I was in college. I was going on a family vacation out to the desert southwest, actually, Grand Canyon and Monument Valley, Bryce Canyon, kind of, you know, in that, that big loop that everyone does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I had I, I was a musician growing up. I went to boarding school as a musician and uh, I lived in New York City, played jazz for a couple of years. And my roommate was a photographer and I'd always been kind of and interested like and see what he was doing he was going to like i think he was parsons school of design as a photography mm-hmm. major mm-hmm. and uh so i had always been kind of interested in photography so i picked up a camera just for fun and uh i actually did a workshop in grand canyon with adam shalau oh cool and <laughs> yeah and that was so that was like my first kind of real introduction to photography and landscape photography particularly and i'd always loved the outdoors and you know, growing up, I you know was always camping and hiking and doing you know st- as much as we could out here in Western Kansas, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so that was just kind of it. I started that there, and basically every weekend venture that I had a long weekend out in college, I was an engineering major, um, and so whenever I had a free moment, I'd pound out to 
Colorado because it was about a six hour drive and go shoot in the mountains and go hiking and whatever for a long weekend, rock climbing, whatever, and kind of just poked around with photography for a while. And then I was doing some like shows and, you know, stuff because I had some work from the Southwest and whatever. And I was kind of just, you know, starting out. And, uh, and then when I, 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 I kept getting a lot more interested in, in it as I was going through college. And so when I was, I got more, you know, more gear and, you know, the whole works, the typical transition. <laughs> and I found the, a really right stuff ball head. And I was like, ah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> and so I was about to graduate from college as a mechanical engineer. And so I just emailed them to say, Hey, like, here's my resume basically. And they flew me out for an interview and that's was my first job. Really? So I was, a, yeah, I was an engineer for really right stuff for uh, about a year and a half That's or so. That's cool. And yeah. <laughs> and so I lived in San Luis Obispo for my wife and I moved out there for about 18 months or so. Not too, not too long, but enough to build a good po- coastal portfolio. And at that time I was shooting a lot of four by five and I'd bought an eight by 10 in that time. And so I was kind of getting that under my ropes. And then uh, I ended up meeting up with Mark Munch, who was a really right stuff had sponsored. And that's kind of how I got it in with him. And then he kind of more or less offered me kind of a, not an internship, but like an apprenticeship per se, and started leading some trips with him. And he started showing me the ropes on that side of thing. And I quit my job and been a full-time photographer ever since. That's crazy. Had he, had (laughs) he seen your work at all or? I, I mean, I, kind of had a little bit of shameless promotion there so <laughs> <laughs> well i mean i was just but, gonna say like had he even had a, a chance to see your photography or was it just like one of those cases of being in the right place at the right time kind of being in the right place at the right time That's crazy. Uh, when i was and it was i was really the only engineer at really right stuff that was really super active like i was going out and shooting big Sur every night like i would just pound up the, the highway one and go shoot shoot the coastline every every night after work when i could huh. And, uh, so I was, when we were designing equipment, there were some, some gaps in the, the, in there where I was just thinking like, well, what are we doing? And I realized that the, the reason that we were designing some not so, yeah, I mean, just equipment that really, I didn't feel like photographers would use is because I was the only photographer. So I said, my idea was that we, all of the engineers should go on photography workshops. Oh, uh-huh. So when I started getting a little bit more involved with finding who we you know sponsored, Mark Much came up. So I sent him an email, and that's kind of how we met and hit it off. So, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome, man. Um, well, is there a um, is there a lot of competition in the professional landscape photography world in Western Kansas? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> Uh, Everyone flies over me. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I was also thinking too. Um, I, you're not the first engineer we've had on the podcast. I feel like uh, Josh Cripps is an engineer, and um, yeah. David Swindler is an engineer. Like, what is it with you, engineering people getting into photography? <laughs> what do you think that's all about? Maybe we just hate sitting behind a desk. I don't know. <laughs> it, you know, it, it the technique of it came really easy to me. Um, and I think that was part of it was just, and I enjoyed the technique and the gear and I was fascinated by mm-hmm. cameras and how they worked and the optics and, and you know how that it all goes. So I think that that was a little bit of the intrigue and then the artistry kind of took over. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I was a musician, so that kind of 
engaged both sides of my brain and mm-hmm. just kind of sent me on a path, I guess. Yeah, and I guess too, you know, one of the biggest barriers to creativity, I feel like, is, uh, you know, having a good understanding of how the equipment operates and not having it get in your way. And if you're an engineering type person, if that comes more naturally, then yeah, you have less barriers, I guess, to, right. to that to that to that entree, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's <laughs> that's awesome, man. So, so yeah, let's talk about. Uh, this YouTube video that you were in, there was a, and I'll, I'll put it in the, uh, the liner notes, but you were in a YouTube video on GeekWire, which had yeah. like a billion views and you were photographing in Antarctica and talking about, uh, why you had switched to large format from digital. And I'd love to hear about how that YouTube video even came about. And maybe from there, talk a little bit about kind of how the heck did you go from digital to film? <laughs> well, actually, we had a the reason the, the whole Geekwire thing is one of our clients uh, is a journalist for Geekwire, and he was on the trip, and so he just kind of uh, loved all the stuff that was hanging around my neck and wanted to know more, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so, but yeah, like I guess the whole transition to film was kind of a kind of backwards, you know, I learned on digital, which I think is still a fantastic learning opportunity for anybody starting out because you just have Mm -hmm. instant feedback. So if you want to check technique, if you want to, you know, check composition, exposure, anything, you have it right at your fingertips. So it's, it's perfect. And I don't Mm -hmm. encourage anyone to start out in film. It sucks. (laughs) (laughs) But but the whole reason that got me transitioned into film was about, I was in college still, and I had gone to, we were on a trip out in San Francisco uh, with my girlfriend to be wife at you know now and uh we i was trying to shoot waves and i I was at that time i was i was doing everything was was panos like i was just shooting non-stop panos Mm -hmm. and i would hardly shoot a single frame at that point so when i was stitching waves it just wasn't working it was before i mean lightroom and photoshop do a really good job these days and so it was kind of at that transitional point where the software started getting halfway decent to where it would actually do something Mm -hmm. and so you'd have these you know the big the big lines and the frames when you'd be stitching these you know seven or eight frames or whatever so i was trying to figure out a way to do it in single shot and you know the the best way i could figure out was a big 617 film camera so i saved for about a year in college it's not a cheap camera and so (laughs) it took me a long time to pinch my pennies and save up for the camera and i I bought one. It was actually my first film camera. It was a Linhoff 617. And I got it. And then when I started working with it, I just had absolute horrid images from it. Because I really, it made me realize how poor my technique and poor my understanding of light was at that time. <laughs> um, and so it, it was, while, I mean, because you know, when you're jump scanning a 617 negative or transparency, you're getting about, 25,000 pixels on the, on the long side. Um, so big, big files, which is a little bit bigger than what I was stitching with. So that was the lure really was I wanted to have big, big film, big, big files. Mm -hmm. And it took a while to get understanding of, especially, you know, I was shooting nonstop transparency film because that's kind of what I was told to shoot more or less. So I would go through a couple of rolls. I had to get a couple of winners here and there that were just, you know, halfway decent. And I, it, when I had bought it, it was in the winter. And so I was trying to shoot in Eastern Kansas at the time in the winter and it was just brown and 
gross. And so it was just kind of a weird time anyway. So I shot a lot just trying to understand it. And finally, I got a good sunrise in a barn one morning. And I was like, ah, cool, done, sold. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I, I had heard at one point in time somewhere that um, Jeff Bridges, the actor, also shoots a panoramic film. Is that right? <laughs> I, I hadn't heard that. That'd be kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I read an article where he would like, you know, when he's on set in the movies and stuff. Um, I guess he has a bunch of ah, sh- that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, I guess he had a, has a bunch of footage from um, the Big Lebowski um, with huh. panoramic film, and I don't know. That would be, I think that's that'd be kind of cool to have conversation with him yeah that'd be way you cool. guys could geek out yeah no no joke yeah that's funny i guess if you're shooting a lot of moving objects like water and waves that and you wanted to get a really big wide perspective that would be even today with modern stitching i feel like it would be really hard to to get it with such a dynamic moving subject yeah, it opens up a lot of compositional opportunities too. Because another p- hard part is actually composing. So you, when you're composing a panorama, you it, just digitally, you, it's really hard to see it physically. Yeah. So to get a precise composition out of it, you have to either have really decent pre visualization, mm-hmm. or you shoot it and crop it kind of in camera, or you just kind of guess and then crop later. So like when I was shooting in San Francisco, I was trying to get this wave breaking over a rock with the Golden Gate Bridge in the background. And it was just, it just couldn't work. And now, I mean, I could go back and actually compose it because I have a viewfinder that has the the frames of, you know, the rough composition. Like you can actually frame it up and wait for the wave to crash and fire off a shot. So it, there are compositional advantages to it for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've also heard from other people that shoot primarily film that, uh, that it helps them kind of compose and see the world differently just because it forces you to slow down. And also you're the picture. I'm guessing this is the case for you as well, that it's upside down. And so it forces you to like see um, shapes and stuff instead of just the scene that your eyes would see. Yeah. On large format you do when you're on a ground glass, it's upside down. Uh-huh. Um, with, with this camera, it's just like a medium, like it's like a rangefinder basically, except okay. it doesn't have a little rangefinder patch. So basically, it's just like guess. You guess focus, you guess everything, and you just stop down and hope for the best. <laughs> um, so you don't see through the lens or anything. So you just kind of point it and shoot it. It's really easy, actually. <laughs> oh, wow. that uh, Yeah. Did you find that to be frustrating, not having like the instant feedback of whether or not it was actually any good? Yeah, it was hard. And that was kind of the, that was the challenge, I think, with a lot of it was just trying to figure out how things are actually going to look because mm-hmm. I mean, film has a look to it. I mean, the, the way it renders colors and the way it renders light is just different than, I mean, but it's, it's photography, photography is photography, but it just has a different way to render light. And so really getting an understanding of that took years. I mean, it just, it really does just like getting, you know, an understanding of digital photography takes a while. Right. Did you find the learning curve to be a lot steeper though? Yeah, I think, I mean, but, Looking back on it, I was still a really young digital photographer. Uh-huh. So I think that if I were to have the technical knowledge that I do now, uh, I would, you know, it'd probably be easier, mm-hmm. especially because you could just use a digital photo- di- digital camera to check your comp- or your exposures. So oh. You could just dial it in, take a shot and check it, um, which is really easy. I didn't think about that back then. 
<laughs> I'm going to say, isn't that uh, cheating? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Oh, t- yeah. It's like chicken. It's like a Polaroid. I mean, come on. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's funny. Well, so your pr- primary subject that you kind of originally got inspired on was the Great Plains. And uh, I feel like <clears throat> majority of photographers, unless you're a storm chaser, you typically avoid the Midwest and the Great Plains. And um, I would love to hear about kind of your journey growing up uh, as that being the subject that inspired you. Yeah, it's hard. Um, it's a hard place to shoot. And there's a lot of, because I mean, you don't really have public land out here. So you're limited on what you can shoot mm. unless you are willing to go knock on you know farmers and ranchers doors or catch somebody in a, in a pickup truck or on a tractor and ask if you can like at least who knows the land and who, you know, you can, if you can go on it or just shoot from the road. Mm-hmm. So there's restrictions for sure. And literally it's flat. Like there's nothing to photograph except the light. So it's was challenging and also really reward. I mean, I love the, it's my home. I've lived here for my whole life. I've moved away a few times and I've, I've found my way back here because it's just home. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love it and I'm attracted to it and it, but it's as a compositional, journey it's difficult because it's just flat so you have to find i've been attracted to you know old like old barns and, and homesteads and um in the open grasslands in eastern kansas it's a lot more open range um and i fortunately have gotten to know some ranchers out there that kind of give me access but there's a, it's a lot of just pure open range so millions of acres of just open grassland so you can kind of wander a little bit easily more easily than you can mm-hmm. in western kansas uh and but you get it's a flint hills and so in the spring you get the nice green lush rolling hills it looks like ireland like it's beautiful and there's like some exposed rocks so you can kind of get in some of the valleys and and shoot a little bit and it's uh it's just it's gorgeous i love it and you get you know that's the thing it's big sky country it's yeah <laughs> you know so you get good you know rolling storms coming through and good sunrises and sunsets because you just have pure and unobstructed views it's yeah, it, it, everybody seems to avoid it and fly over it because you know your state of Colorado is right west of me, so those are those are big mountains to come come see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it, and out east, it's a lot easier to to handle because it's such open grassland. So, and the every spring they do a big burn, and so millions of acres will burn, and you can kind of go and you know just hitch a ride with some of the ranchers basically and just kind of walk around with them and it's slow moving fires that just kind of trickle across the whole prairie and that would be interesting yeah it's really it's really cool it's a lot of fun yeah that must be really cool to see something like that yeah it is it's it's kind of daunting when you start with it but it's uh (laughs) you quickly learn that you know it they burn it against the wind so it's it moves actually really slow and the flames are it depends on how wet the year was previous but you know the flames are usually only a couple feet high so you can jump across and kind of shoot from different angles and yeah it's pretty it's it's slick though it's a lot of fun yeah i was curious um i haven't really spent much time in that part of the country taking pictures and i'm curious you know most of the pictures i've seen um of that subject and that kind of area it seems like you're highly dependent on some pretty dynamic conditions in terms of weather or really awesome clouds or yeah. things like that. I'm curious, like, how do you overcome some of those challenges? Cause it's not like you have like a bunch of shade or 
I don't know. Like, <laughs> kind of what? Yeah, like what do you look for on the yeah, bad days? No, sure. <laughs> I don't shoot. <laughs> I travel. <laughs> you know, we we battle the wind a lot here. You know, it's been like tomorrow we're supposed to get really nasty winds come through. Um, so it, it's just you know, it, I don't shoot every day. Um, I shoot on days. I'm fortunate to be here. So, you sure. know, I, I pick my, I pick my battles to some extent. I shoot seasonally. A lot of the times winter is tough. I mean, it just, especially now, like in the middle of winter, it just turns gray. Like it's just kind of gross. Right. Um, I'll change subject matter. Like sometimes I'll shoot more of like scenes of this, like grain elevators and, you know, stuff going on around like just local communities, um, you know, stuff like that. But, you know, the summer is great. Spring is great. Um, usually I'm traveling pretty extensively in the fall. Um, so I just kind of, I just pick my battles, you know, the spring I is great because we get the big thunderstorms that roll through. Uh, so it's, you know, I'm right. You know, people travel all, all over the world to come see these storms that I grew up with them, you know, so it, you, we just kind of hope that we don't get them. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Cause it's just a, you know, big insurance claim waiting to happen, but it's, uh, it, it, it that's a lot of fun because it, they, you can see them coming for miles, you know, so on a good day, a supercell will come through and. You don't even have to look at the forecast. You can just look outside and there's a, just a big monster thunderstorm rolling through that's 20 miles away. So you can just go literally drive to go shoot it. Uh, right. So, yeah, yeah, it's just I mean, it's just like anywhere, you know, you pick your battles and you pick your conditions and you just kind of ride out the storm, storm so to speak. But uh, I don't do I don't shoot a lot here. <laughs> I'm curious in terms of um, what the people that live locally did. Do you find that they're more attracted to your work of local subjects and destinations that they're familiar with? Or do you find that they're more drawn to the scenes of places and subjects that they maybe have never been to before? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, people don't get it at all. <laughs> they don't understand what I do in the slightest around here. So most of the prairie work that I've seen to, have, especially print sales are to people who don't live here or have lived here previously. Oh, so like, you know, sunflower fields and whatnot. Uh, uh-huh. there are people that have like moved to Chicago or moved to New York or, you know, they've, they've left, they grew up and went to school here or, you know, just grew up and decided I want to get out of that flyover state. And so they moved somewhere that actually has, you know, good grocery stores. And, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that's typically the people, cause there's a nostalgic, nostalgic aspect to it. I think that, you know, mm-hmm. there's a draw mm-hmm. to the prairie that people like, but just people just don't want to live here. Um, Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of that, but people that people think I'm weird when I have, you know, especially when I'm shooting four by five and I have a big thing on a tripod and I'm under a hood and I don't know, I get the cops called on me occasionally if I'm shooting little towns and, you know, I have to explain myself and show them that I (laughs) know, no, I'm not building a bomb. I'm taking a picture. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. Yeah. My, my mom, uh, so my mom lives in Colorado Springs, which, you know, you know, east of her is all plains. Yeah. And uh, she spends a lot of time driving out in the eastern plains looking for uh, birds. Like she does a lot of yeah, birding sure. and photographs a lot of birds. And she gets uh, all kinds of weird people that, you know, cuss her out and don't understand yeah. what she's doing. Pull it off on the side of the road looking at birds and stuff like that. I'm sure you get a similar, a lot of similar attention with the big camera. Yeah. And, you know, people around here, especially landowners and ranch owners and whatnot, and ranch hands, you know, people that are just working on the farms, they're very leery of anyone that is stopping because they're either hunting illegally, they're 
vandalizing. You'd be surprised. Like, you know, one of the biggest things, you know, on social media, I don't share hardly any of my prairie work because people just want to know exactly where it is. Mm -hmm. And like, that's the biggest thing is the last thing I want to do is exploit some of these private properties. And, you know, and they're pretty easy to find, like, to be honest, like you can just look on Google Earth and find an abandoned home in the middle of the field. It's not that hard. (laughs) So I don't share a lot of that work because I don't want to bring attention to a lot of the scenes out here because it is such a, you have to build a relationship with people and you have to build a level of trust because I can't tell you how many times I've had a shotgun pulled on me just by stopping and looking at something and, or walking up to an abandoned property that had, you know, no signs or, you know, no posted trespass, no trespassing signs. So yeah. it's, it's a level of respect. You know, most would, when most people figure out that you're harmless, they're fine, but it's that, you know, it, it's one thing, you know, I'll shoot a, a, a barn or a house. And then three weeks later, somebody sees it on Facebook or something and they go shoot holes in it, you know, or, you know, something stupid like that. So it, it happens all the time. Hmm. So I, get it from that perspective that people are so wary of it but it, yeah it's just a it's just a level of respect that you have to have but you know for the the, the landowners mm-hmm. well and i think you know they don't they don't want to become a tourist attraction yeah, exactly you know? yeah like look at what happened to the palouse i mean it's kind of the same yeah, my, right. my 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 area is a lot similar you know it's it's uh not so i'm much flatter but <laughs> right. it's you know we have the big wheat fields and big sunflower fields and you know abandoned homes and old barns and you know, it's it's cool uh, but yeah, in the Palouse these days, it's just a madhouse with people being people. <laughs> people being people. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if you um, have seen that article that recently came out about it's. It's like this famous. Well, it's Instagram famous, but it's uh, there's a um, like a fish house in Maine that's like up on stilts and. Uh, and it's kind of a similar thing. Like this whole community was transformed because this one house that uh, was popularized by basically one photographer who sure. just kept sharing Instagram hashtags, basically made this place, put this place on the map and it's completely changed the fabric of the community. Yeah. And I mean, it's a double-edged sword to some extent because we want tourism in some places because it brings right. business. Like, I mean, in my neck of the woods, it's, you know, we have, it's primarily agriculture. We have no tourism. I mean, no one comes here it's just you know there's a couple of hotels that people just stop here if they get tired on the highway and so you know it so on one hand it's would be kind of nice to have a little tourism but also it's like just you can't it seems like you can't trust people these days to follow the rules which is just a shame i think a lot of people don't even realize that there are rules well yeah exactly and you know if you if you haven't grown up in a place like this you just don't realize that you know, this is somebody's property and this, their property might be a million acres. And if you step foot on it, it's just like stepping foot on your front yard. Like you wouldn't want someone just, you know, setting up a tripod and in your front yard, taking a picture of your apple tree in DC, you know, what, or whatever you're, you know, might be doing. So it's just, it's the same level of, of respect. It's just on a much grander scale in some extent. Right. And I'm sure, um, just the nature of kind of, you know, being more rural, you probably are more familiar with some of the nuance behind like, okay, that property is owned by this guy and he's yeah. not, he's not very yeah. nice, but that guy over there is super nice, but you got to make sure you bring him freshly baked cookies or, exactly. you know, like yeah. that kind of stuff. Totally. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. And people that are just tourists, they don't probably have any of that knowledge of the nuance. Yeah. I, I feel like there's a lot of people that travel to the, uh, 
desert Southwest and Navajo nation that, you know, just feel like, Oh, I can just go wherever I want and oh, totally. take, take pictures. And they don't realize like you're on Navajo land right now. Like yep. they could, Come kill you right now if they want. Right. <laughs> yeah, you're in foreign waters. <laughs> yeah, like I don't think people fully understand that sometimes. So right. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. So one of the things you mentioned earlier was around drum scanning, and I know we had Tim Parkin on the podcast, who's yeah. primarily uh, film, and he talked a little bit about drum scanning. But I'm curious. Uh, from your perspective, um, I know you have like a drum scanning service that you offer. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to hear about kind of what what that even looks like and kind of why people would be interested in in that service. Well, especially with people shooting a lot more film these days, you know, there's a lot of easier ways to to scan film, and most people aren't printing honestly anymore. Period. Let alone decent sized prints. But for pure, you know, archival standard, you know, high resolution scans, you know, you want to get a drum scan. That's just the way to go about it. It's, you know, it's wet mounted. So a lot of the times that it will help fill in some scratches and some defects in the film. Uh, it's relatively dust free. So you don't have to deal with that in post. Um, and it's just, it, it's super high resolution. I mean, you're getting a, a, about a, almost a gigabyte file off a 35 millimeter frame. And so then you go up to eight by 10 and you have a lot more resolution. So it's, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, it's, it's more of a resolution game, I think. And, uh, you get, you're scanning in 16 bits. So you have, you know, it's, you have good full color range and, uh, it's, it's nice. So it, you know, for those of, for those people that are starting to shoot film or want to want to see what film can really do, you know, it's, I encourage you to first scan your own work because then you get to, to know it and you get to understand what's, what you can and what you can't do with film. But once mm-hmm. you find a couple of good frames, like, Cinema. It doesn't have to be me, you know. I have a good friend, Alex Burke. He also has a drum scanning service, and I like to say that I am ten dollars higher, and we produce exactly the same scans. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it's just I may be a little bit more dust free than he is. It's the only difference. <laughs> right. But uh, it and so we have the same scanner, same everything, and you know, so just send them off and just to see what they can do because you know, it film is actually it, it's still a very viable medium to shoot professionally uh i've done it for years now and it's it's great yeah how malleable are those files that come off of the drum scan um it's nothing like a digital file i mean what you what you see is kind of what you get with especially Mm -hmm. transparency film like there's a little bit of you know leeway to it so like if for instance i like to offer the guideline that if you were to take a transparency film and hold the brightest flashlight you have through it and to see like what the shadow detail is, that's about what the drums can, can pull. So it's not like it's recording details in the shadows because it doesn't, it's not like a digital file. So really what you see is what you get, but you eliminate a lot of color casts and you eliminate, eliminate a lot of like banding and mm-hmm. uh, color variations between light you know different like if for instance like an earth shadow like you get a fan you don't get like weird color gradations between the 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 hues of pink and blue you know whatever it's a very smooth even transition so drum scans because it is actually a true digital or analog to digital process so it's actually recording things in rgb analog and converting it to digital so it's Mm -hmm. it's it's a really unique process and Mm -hmm. It's so it's 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 a lot different than just like shooting a frame on your light table with a DSLR. So 
Right. So, so for, I mean, I just got done reading Ansel Adams biography, which was fascinating Mm, to hear, hear about all of the stuff he did, not so much in camera, but like in the, in the dark room in terms of dodging and burning and all the things that he would do to bring out with the zone system and all that. And I'm curious, uh, as a modern practitioner of, of large format film, um, are you, are you, uh, producing your own prints or like what, like how much control do you have as an artist over the output of your final product? I I mean, I have a lot. Um, you know, I, I'm a strong believer that good light is always found within three to five stops of dynamic range anyways. So within reason, I mean, film is still the transparency film is, is all you'll ever need because that's about the, the exposure latitude of transparency film. So really when I get it as a digital file, I don't do much besides emphasize particular subject matter. Like I'll lighten contrast or I will deepen contrast or I will boost exposure in certain areas just to, just to emphasize particular areas, just like you would in the dark room or even as a digital photographer. So I, I really have a relatively same workflow that I would if I was shooting a Hasselblad digital camera that I would a Hasselblad film, cam- film camera. Once the file's in my computer, you know, I just, I, I just add a little bit of contrast. I work on, on color uh, balance and whatnot, and that's about it. So it's, it's really, it's a pretty straightforward process because most of the time the film does most of the work for me. And mm-hmm. I have learned to work in that range of dynamic range, you know, in, in that range of luminosity. And it, I don't have to do much because it's just a little bit of boosting and a little bit of dodging and burning here in Photoshop. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, but regarding prints, yeah, I, I, I do inkjets right now is kind of really what I'm working on. Um, cause I'm mostly a color photographer. So I, I have toyed around with platinum palladium prints, which I think we'll get to. Uh, but there's this new process that I've been kind of experimenting with that's it's color carbon printing, which is basically like, it's almost like dye transfers. If you've ever been familiar with that, like I, Charlie Kramer used to do dye transfer printing when mm-hmm. he was shooting four by five and it's a really labor intensive process, but it's a traditional method of darkroom printing, essentially quote unquote, you can do it in light spectrum, but, um, but you're really, you're transferring dyes to a, 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 a a paper so you're you're you can do like a three or four or seven layer like rgb cmyk all these different layers of pink pigments and then you transfer them to a final print so i'm playing with that uh to actually make true like wet color prints but i do a little bit right now i'm just doing inkjet prints because it's all i really can do with what i have available to me Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not a lot of print labs in in Kansas. No, no, I am the print lab. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. No, that's interesting. I, I was kind of curious, like when you're in the field as a film photographer, um, do you approach different scenes and think about using different types of film, or do you yeah. typically shoot with very different the same film? Like, no, absolutely. Yeah, I will. It's it's changed a little bit in the last year um i'm beginning to use a lot more negative film than i used to um and i'll get into that the reason why but like i have been a basically i've always shot fuji velvia 50 and provia 100 and velvia i shoot basically because of the color it's stunning there's nothing i've never been able to find 
any other film or digital camera that can replicate the color clarity and gamut that Fuji Velvia can. I will shoot that typically in lower contrast scenes. So anything that I can even, you know, keep down to three to five stops. So usually mm-hmm. it's in like reflected light or in shade or in twilight or something that I can grab easily and keep, you know, block out the, the highlights pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem with it is there's, it has a really high uh, reciprocity failure. So, which basically means that the longer it's, it, it's being exposed to light, the less sensitive it becomes. So mm-hmm. at two seconds, you have to go three seconds. At four seconds, you have to go six seconds. At eight seconds, you have to go 16. And it just builds gradually. And so at, when you're doing a 30-second exposure, which is pretty common on large format at you know twilight, you're in the minute and a half to two-minute range a lot of the times. Mm. So I gravitate towards Provia, which also... Is it has a similar color balance, but it's a little bluer, and it's not quite as saturated. So it's a more neutral film, um, and I use it for situations like long exposures where I have to, I don't have to bite fight reciprocity at all. You can actually leave the. It's a good uh, Star Trail film, so if you ever want to shoot like a full night of Star Trails, you just leave the shutter open all night, and you get these big mm-hmm. cool Star Trails. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, with no uh, sensor noise. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's just some grain. It's all <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but I, lately I've been shooting a lot more negative film, uh, especially in medium format. Not, not as much in large format purely because of the color palette mo- mostly. Uh, but it has a great exposure latitude, like 10 plus stops. Like it's really, it's, I've never been able to overexpose it. Like I've intentionally overexposed a frame of, like Portra 160 by like six stops and developed it. And it was fine. Like it was a little washed out, but it was, it was very easy to, you know, to recover. So nice. it's, it's really, it's kind of an easy film to shoot. Cause you just shoot it's the shadow. Forgiving. Yeah. It's very forgiving. And it has a really soft color palette, which I've been liking a lot for, especially in like grand scenics and bigger landscapes. And especially in the mountains, uh, Velvia can block up the shadows like no other. You get really contrasty kind of dark colors. And if you're shooting Grand Scenics, like it just kind of, it, it's okay sometime in like Red Rock country. But when you get big pine trees and, you know, things that really don't expose well anyways, you, you got to kind of, it, it's nice. Because you just, basically, you just expose for the shadows and you're good. Right. <laughs> so well, it's, I mean, it's, it's easy. <laughs> it's almost the opposite of what we do in digital, which is like exposing for the right. exposing for the highlights nowadays, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> that's That actually sounds more appealing to me, actually, exposing it's, for the shadows. Yeah, it's really easy. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's it, I mean, in digital, it's like it's, it's really almost impossible to recover highlight detail, but it's usually pretty doable to recover shadow detail. Right, which is similar in like transparency film. You really once you blow out highlights, you're done. Like there mm-hmm. is nothing. It just it looks worse than digital files that are blown out. Uh, but with with negative film, yeah, like it, the, the contrary is if you underexpose it, you can't pull shadows because you can. You know, the film only records what it records. So mm-hmm. it, if you underexpose it, it just gets muddy and gross and black and not attractive so the, mm-hmm. i always tend to lean on overexposures when i can for negative film mm-hmm. and you can always i assume you have the same tools available to you in photoshop where you can bring down some of the highlights yeah, and things like exactly. that if you needed to yeah that's cool yeah yeah that, that's awesome well i had um i had read in another interview that you had done 
that one of your goals when you're doing landscape photography is to portray a uh, mood and emotion that you were experiencing at the time of capture. Yeah. And um, that really caught my attention because that's something that I feel like I'm trying to do more of, although it's really difficult because I'm not a highly emotional person. <laughs> um, so usually my photos are like happy and I'm just, you know, excited to be there and things like that. So it's like, Oh, that's the same as the last photo I took. So I'm curious, like, what does that process look like for you? And like, how do you even do it? Yeah, it's, I wouldn't say that I'm that emotional of a person anyways. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> it, it's, it's not like I'm having a bad day and I go out and create an angry photo. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I guess, you know, with, with large format too, with one thing that's really interesting and cool about it is you're separated from the camera. Like you, you are under that you're, you're isolated. First of all, you're isolated from your composition. So you say so you, you pick out a, a grand scenic and it's this nice little stream running into a lake. You have a nice reflection of a mountain, big mountain in the background. You compose everything and get it all focused up underneath a cloth. So you're, you're isolating yourself from the entire environment. And so you can really focus on your composition. And then when you remove yourself from being behind the camera and seeing through the camera, and you're standing next to it. So you can actually like be part of the exposure when it actually happens. So it's, it, I, I tr- try to translate what I'm feeling, I guess, in that process by both when I'm composing and when I actually make the composite or make the exposure. And so it's, it's not so much of, I, this is a happy photo and this is a sad photo, but it's, you know, I try to take in what I'm hearing, what I'm smelling and try to portray that as best I can in the image, both digitally and in print Mm -hmm. and you know it's it's one of those things too that i think the problem with a lot of landscape photographers these days is they don't print and so they don't see their work on a final medium and there's so much that can be said about properly lighting printing and lighting a photograph because and it's just like lighting your subject in nature i mean it's this it's exactly Mm -hmm. the same thing you based on the medium that you print on whether it's glossy matte the frame you choose, the the glass that you want to put over it, if you're printing on metal, wood, whatever the hell you want to print on, uh, it it all takes into, you know, you take it all into consideration when you are a viewer seeing that print. Mm-hmm. So I think that's more of what I'm trying to portray um, is trying to uh, spark an emotion. And, you know, I, I study a lot of painters like the, the Hudson River School, especially, um, and how they portray light and uh, light and shadow and, contrast and mood and you know so it's like like you know and i guess that goes back to creating a happy or a sad photo you know if it's a big thunderstorm and you're creating something with that then you know it's going to be more of a darker scene so Mm -hmm. how do you portray that in print like that's always my my end goal is like what is this going to look like in print and a lot of the times it (laughs) a lot of times it falls through the cracks (laughs) it doesn't (laughs) work a lot of the times uh, but yeah. so, I, and that's kind of one of the big projects that I'm working on this year is I'm taking a step back completely from digital work and sharing on social media and the whole works. Like, you know, I'm just trying to remove myself from the whole game, I guess, a little bit mm-hmm. and trying to step back and just go through my entire portfolio and just print everything and print and work on series of images, work on what I have, work on, you know, what I want to portray in a final print. and you know, so that's that's kind of what I'm doing personally because it's just that's what it's about for me. You know, it's you know I I, I get caught up in the Instagram likes as much I think as anybody. It's you know it's a nice ego stroke, but at the end of the day, like 
I want to be able to produce work and that's meaningful and it's not most of the time meaningful on Instagram. So. Right. On a, on a two inch screen. Come on. Yeah. Man. Especially. Yeah. It's like the, when the, <laughs> my, my, the, the film on my light table is like three or four times bigger than what I'm seeing on my phone. Like, yeah, I, I know let's, let's print it. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting. You were talking about the mood of the final print and how light can affect that. I, Wish I would written down the name of this photographer, but uh, when I first started out in photography back in 2010, 2011, I took a trip to Santa Fe, not to take pictures, but I just happened to be down there and I went into someone's gallery. And again, I don't remember who, who this was, but uh, the photographer happened to be there at the time. And um, he had some really cool like Grand Canyon monsoon lightning mm-hmm. storm pictures, you know? Yeah. Um, like tons of long exposure stuff. I don't know if it was digital or film, but um, but he, he had a uh, special lighting uh, setup in his gallery where he could like touch a button and it would completely transform the image on the wall based on how it was lit. Sure. And it was so cool to see because it was like you said, you know, one lighting orientation, maybe, you know, different colors, different amount of light created like more of a kind of somber, you know, feeling photo yeah. or an ominous photo and another way of doing it kind of brought more excitement and mystery. So it was like, it was really interesting to see the, the, the role that light plays on the final print. Um, totally. not just, you know, not just the actual exposure, but actually how it's printed and how it's lit can change, can, can change the print entirely. Yeah. And I think, you know, going kind of, I had somewhat of a similar experience first time I went to Zion and I think it was in 2017, 20, no, it was earlier than that. doesn't matter. Long time ago, <laughs> longer than 2017. And it was when Michael Fatale, his gallery was still open in Springdale. Uh-huh. And I remember seeing, and it was a pretty, not bland, I would say is the, not the right word, but it was just kind of a really simple image of a single golden cottonwood tree in the middle of the frame with a dark storm and kind of a look like a winter, you know, early winter storm in the background, you know, some of that sagebrush, you know, typical of the Utah plains. And uh, the way he had it lit was just so it was so ominous because he had a very dim spotlight just right on the middle of the tree and the rest of the the, the whole other, you know, the rest of the frame just went to shadow. Mm. And I remember looking at that like that is stunning. And then I saw it online and I was like, that is so bland. <laughs> <laughs> And sorry if you're listening, Michael, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's a beautiful image and it was, but it was all about the way it was presented in the gallery. And so right. that's, I think that's the thing. And so it's contrary to that also is then when your clients take it home, they hang it on their wall and it looks like shit. So <laughs> dude, I just, so. um, I just had that experience recently, um, was kind of demoralizing, but I had a client, yeah. <laughs> a really large print with, you know, like had acrylic face i mean it was amazing i saw the oh, yeah. uh, i saw the print before it was faced with acrylic and i was blown away by it in the in the lab and you know she emailed me she's like yeah and when she got it in the home she was like yeah it's, it's stunning it's beautiful we love it but it reflects all this light there's uh-huh. a window and blah 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 and i'm like yeah like you can't just put your photo anywhere like it's really important to think about where you're going to put your picture yeah, right. You know, which is like, why I think it's critical. And I think that that's why canvas prints sell so well because they're one, they're cheap, and two, you can just stick them anywhere. It doesn't matter. Um, so that, then that's because right. I've struggled with exactly the same thing. So you have to 
it's you have to educate your clientele, which is a whole different game, and it's just not something that I've been interested in lately. <laughs> so because it is, you know, people are disappointed because it's not what they saw in, in the gallery. So it's it's a hard thing right. as a photographer to want and to achieve that kind of mood and lighting uh, in a you know a really specific way, and then somebody takes it home and sticks it in their entryway, and it's like, well. Yeah, if you open your door, it's going to look like garbage. So, <laughs> right, <laughs> and it's one of those things like you don't. It's you don't. I don't blame my client. I mean, like she's never hung no, a, sure. a piece of work like that up in her house before. But at the same time, it's like you also don't want to like mansplain to every customer <laughs> exactly like where to hang their artwork and like how to light it and stuff like that. Yeah. Although after that experience, I did go into my website and like added a bunch of, you know, text and verbiage about properly lighting and the impact it has and stuff like that. But it's, it's one of those things, like, unless you can show somebody the difference, it's hard to explain. It is. And that's a lot of the times, honestly, why I've gone to, or a lot of the reason why, why I've gone to just inkjet prints. One, they're more archival than most, uh, like halide or, you know, C not C41, RA4 process prints, like the light jets and the chromeras and whatnot. Um, and I can have full control over it myself. So that's a couple of reasons that I've gone for that is because the papers are less glossy. So they're, they present much better in most people's homes. And also it's kind of the aesthetic that I've been going for recently. So it's not that high gloss where you have to have such controlled environments in order for the print to really shine. But you can still, I use a Barida paper, which still has enough sheen where in good lighting, you can still kind of get that same effect as you could in like a, a C41 or not, I keep saying C41, an RA4 print or like a, a light jet print and whatnot, where it's that super high gloss look that, you know, right, the like Peter Lake style look. Like a Fujiflex. Yeah, 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 exactly. A Fujiflex. Yeah. Yeah, because that's, exa- that's all I used to print on. <laughs> yep. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's. All that I used to print on was was that that look, and I had exactly the same problems. So people would get their prints home, and they'd hang it on their wall, and they'd be disappointed with it. I'd either have to take it back, or print it somewhere else, or you know do something different. And so I just said, you know what, I'm just gonna nix that and just go straight with you know just inkjet prints because it's it, it's easier to handle. The papers can you can actually sell prints. You don't have to worry about the prints being damaged and whatnot. So it's just an easier process these days. Yes. So what kind of paper is that? It's, I use a Hana Mule, I think it's like a photo rag barita. Um, oh, okay. And it's like a, it's uh-huh. a, it's pretty heavyweight paper, but it has a nice, it almost looks like a, like a, a silver gelatin paper. So like a traditional, like an Ansel Adams print, like, you know, you'd have that, it has a little bit of texture on it mm-hmm. and it has a nice level of gloss, but it's not like super gloss. Uh, mm-hmm. I, yeah, yeah, I, I recently, really I recently printed a bunch of stuff on, um, it was a, Epson Bright Cold Press or Cold yeah, Press Bright. Yeah, it's really similar to that. Yep. I think it's, yeah, similar. It's, um, I was super pumped when I saw them because they're, they're really bright, um, but they're not glossy at all, but it's, yeah. and they have some texture. It's really cool stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. So what's the deal with these platinum palladium prints? Like, what is that? <laughs> so that's a fun one. Uh, so there's this lab. <laughs> in Flagstaff, Arizona. And I think they're like the, one of the only commercial platinum palladium labs in the country. So basically I might put my foot in my mouth here and get this wrong, but platinum palladium was, it predates gelatin, like in a traditional darkroom prints 
quite a bit. It's one of the first photographic processes. And it's like around the same time as like wet plates um, or shortly thereafter. And basically you create an emulsion of a light sensitive emulsion and you coat a piece of absorbent paper, like a cotton paper or a watercolor paper, and it becomes sensitive to UV light. And then you contact print your negative onto the paper and you, you clear it out and you develop it and you get a print. And it's basically as it's like the most stable printing process ever because it's platinum and palladium. It's truly those two metals salts in your paper. So as long as the paper holds up, you know, it'll last longer than we will. And so it's a really cool process, black and white, and you can tone it with the different temperature, like physical temperatures of developers, and you can create warm and cool tones based on the amount of platinum versus palladium you put in the print. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's a really cool process. And I got into it with, uh, when I, I befriended David Brookover. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with his work. He has a gallery up in Jackson Hole and shoots used to shoot and still does a little bit eight by 10. And that's how we kind of hit it off originally. And he has a lot of big ones. So I, you know, big, big prints. And because then I was curious about how the heck he did that because the, the print or the, the, the platinum palladium print is only as big as your negative. So if you're shooting an eight by 10 camera, you can produce eight by 10 prints. Hmm. Well, this funny thing called digital printing came along. <laughs> and because the whole the process just like died out essentially like people you know would still kind of you know do it on the, i think on for fun if you're shooting big cameras but for the most part it kind of died out when gelatin came around and then when you know digital printing came along and it's kind of revived since because you can print digital negatives so you anybody digital photographers film photographers whomever can have a digital file print out a digital negative and basically create a platinum palladium print as large as you want, as long as large as the paper will go. So this lab, Hidden Light is the name of the lab in Flagstaff, Arizona, is one of the only commercial labs in the country that you can do one-off prints with. And there's a couple that will do like editions. So you can go in and work with the printer and they'll do like 10 editions and it's 20 grand, you know, so it's not cheap. (laughs) Yeah, because the prints themselves are not cheap. Like it's based on, it's there's a lot of expertise. There's a lot of prep work that goes into the prints. And so it's like, you know, 11 by 14 will run you a few hundred bucks. Like it's not something that you just run off and go print at Walgreens. Like it's a, it's, you want to make it a good, it's a piece of art. And, but it's, it's stunning. There's nothing else like it. Like really there's nothing else like a true, a well crafted platinum palladium print. Have you, have you found that, um, that buyers can, you know, tell the difference? You know what I mean? That's one of the things um, I've noticed is like, cool. Like, oh, it's a cool photo. I want to, print of it and they don't really care what it's printed on sometimes yeah i mean it's a different market you're not that at that point you're not marketing right. to the layman that you know the, someone walking through a casino in las vegas is not going to buy one um you are looking for people that understand photography and understand the art of photography and appreciate it um mm-hmm. so it's and i'm honestly i'm not branding myself as a black and white photographer so i have not really spent a lot of time I enjoy making the prints and I enjoy the process, but I haven't really devoted a whole lot of time to trying to sell them. And because I'm just not a black and white photographer, I enjoy it on the off chance that I find a cool scene, but it's not what I go out and look for. Um, So, but like Brookover, he's found a market. Like he does extremely well with his platinum palladium prints. So, I, I mean, there's, there's definitely a market for them and 
because they're freaking cool. <laughs> yeah, that, I would love to see one. It sounds like it sounds, and it's just black and white. Like it's there's no color at all. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, you can you can tone it either cool or warm. So it's like you can kind of get the sepia look. Or sure. I prefer mine a little kind of neutral. Um, but like if yeah, you can get them really warm, like almost yellow sometimes. Right. Like what was it? I think Ansel back in the day was. He was adding a lot of selenium to his prints and it was yeah. making it look mm-hmm. like kind of washed out or I don't know. That's what mm-hmm. I read in the book anyway. It sound, sounds totally yeah. similar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, cool. Well, so you're teaching for Munch workshops and I, you had talked yeah. a little bit earlier about um, kind of how that came about. But uh, what do you what do you have coming up in your teaching uh, arena? Man, a lot. They're keeping me busy these days. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's uh, good. It, yeah, it's fun. I get to travel a bit, which is kind of counter to photographing the prairie, like we were talking about earlier. Like I'm gone all the time. It seems like I just got back from Antarctica, which I go. Uh, that was my third trip, and I'll go twice this year. So I'll go to the Falkland Islands, South Georgia, and Antarctica in October, which is like a 24 day trip, and then I'll turn around a month later and go back to the peninsula again. Um, I am heading to the Yukon up in at Whitehorse on Friday, actually for a week long Northern Lights trip. Hopefully, nice. Uh, if they if that all if that all plays out, and I have February off, and then March I'm going to Morocco, which I'm really excited about. That I actually did that was sprung on me a couple of days ago, so that's looking. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, a couple of backpacking trips this summer and yeah, it's, it's fun. They, they keep me busy. So it's, it's been a really fun career starting with them. Yeah. The, the, the people that sign up for the, the, for your workshops, are they, are they also film shooters or do you get a mixture? No, you know, a mixture. I've, I've converted a couple, <laughs> uh, but I, you know, photography is photography and that's what I try to teach. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter what medium you shoot. It's all about the technique and about the composition, about the light. Um, so I, I shoot film and I shoot digital. So I, you know, I keep up with all the, the, the trends and the techniques and everything. Um, but yeah, no, most of the time it's all digital photographers. Interesting. Uh, it's very rare that it, you get a film, film guy coming through. Huh. It seems like yeah. there would be a market for that, but I guess, you know, it hasn't hit critical mass. Yeah. And it's, you know, a lot of the, it's a lot of younger generations that are savvy with Google and don't mind experimenting that don't need the the guidance that right you know that the older demographic wants um so it's it, the hipster crowds that don't have the money either <laughs> you know that are that are trying that are trying to buy you know the, buy the 35 dollar cameras and go out and shoot a roll of film right. uh that's yeah that's not our market for sure right, 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 right. uh but you know but i have you know there's been some clients that have been intrigued by it and have really fallen in love with it so it's it's that has been really a lot of fun for me to see that transition because that's exactly how i ended up transitioning to film and fell in love with it Mm -hmm. yeah no i I, like i said before one of the reasons i was drawn to you is just the idea of shooting single frame panoramas just i I love panoramas it's one of the when i first got into photography i was shooting panoramas like a madman so uh, yeah i love them so the idea of you know taking a single exposure and having a panorama is it's intriguing. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I could I could see how it would be for sure because, you know, you're you have to worry a lot less about 
light transition, especially at those shoulder hours of the yep. golden hour. And exactly. I don't know. I'm sure you experienced in the digital world where you're stitching files together and like on the left, it's like really bright. And on the right, it's really dark. Like it's hard to keep the yeah. even. <laughs> yeah. And then, or like you're midway through a stitch and a, sun, a cloud goes behind the sun right. or in front of the sun. Right. And yeah, if it goes behind the sun, then we're in deep trouble. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like it completely changes the entire scene. Oh, it does. Yeah. yeah. And so, it, yeah, you don't have to deal with that. I mean, you get long exposures, but then, you know, because just like anything, you're you're battling the depth of field and the, the larger format. So you're shooting at F, you know, 45 sometimes if you really need to. Right. So, you you know, you'll get, you'll get long exposures, but that's, you know, that, then at least it all transitions smoothly or it's all screwed up. So it's, <laughs> it's <all right. laughs> it works out. <laughs> right. And so in some ways, that's more comforting because there's nothing worse than uh for me anyway there's nothing worse than coming home having shot a really awesome pano and then realizing that like one of the 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 ones in the middle is like blurry or the exposure is all jacked up it's yeah. happened to me so many times like i can't even right. tell you it's so frustrating yeah well i mean you also have the have to deal with well you just dropped a roll and in the water and then it's all it's all, it's all gone. gone anyway so right, or gets nuked <laughs> by the by yeah. tsa or something yeah, I've had, I just actually developed a role yesterday that uh, I left in my bag because you know those they have the, they're installing those new uh, scanners in the airports here, and I accidentally left it in my bag, and it was a really nice role from Antarctica that just got X-rayed to hell. Oh so, man! Oh well. <laughs> yeah, it's it's name of the game. Yeah. Well, cool, man. So winding down, I'm curious, who would you recommend uh, for people to have here on the podcast? Well, I've I've mentioned a couple of them already. My friend Alex Burke, um, he's another four by five shooter. Shoots a lot in the prairies. He's working on a really really cool project right now um, of grain elevators shot on negative film, and he's a great guy. He'd be fun to have on. He's a drum scanner as well. Um, he has a unique way of composition and he backpacks a lot in Colorado, so you'd you'd hit off well. Um, and then. Adam Shalau would be a good one. I don't know if you've actually interviewed him or not yet, but based out of Flagstaff. Um, he, he, yeah, he'd be a good one. I've asked him a few times. I've Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, listening, Adam. I'll, I'll poke him for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and if you get a chance, Dave Brookover uh, out in Jackson would be a good one. He's a very much an artist and would have be, have a really unique, uh, add a really unique perspective to the podcast, I think. Awesome, dude. Yeah. Well, thanks, man. This has been a lot of fun. I learned a lot. Yeah. Well, good. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, thanks to Michael for joining us on the podcast this week. If you've not taken a look at his images on his website, you're really missing out. He has some absolutely stunning work. Well, in case you missed it, we announced the winner of our inaugural Landscape Conservation Award last week. You can follow the link in the liner notes to learn more about it, and congratulations to the winner, J. Henry Fair. The award could not have been possible without the generous support of our patrons over on Patreon, so thank you all so very much. Thanks to our newest members on Patreon, and welcome to the F-Stop family. Thanks to Drew Armstrong for increasing your pledge. I love you, man. Thanks to J.D. O'Neill, Jerry Greer, Royce Bear and Mohib Ahmad for joining us as well. You are all awesome. All right, well, let's talk about who's coming up on the podcast. I'm really excited to announce some of our upcoming guests and episodes. Next up, we have Toby Harriman. He joined us for a fascinating discussion about mental health 
aerial photography, and censorship from Instagram. Don't miss that one next week. After that, we have Nikki Rausch. She is a sales coach, and we, we recorded that one today, and it was a ton of fun. I learned a lot. We also have Brenda Tharp, a photographer from Sonoma County, California, coming up, and Christian Fletcher, a photographer from Australia. And uh, I will be recording some episodes from uh, Out of Yosemite next week, so wish me luck there. Okay, well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.